0: Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get
1: to the show. hello and welcome to maximizing outcomes with jim mcgovern jim how are you eric i'm doing great i'm really excited
2: about today's guest we have uh ken alter joining us from planning alliance and uh he's a a managing director and a board member for planning alliance Uh, his office is located just outside of new york city on on the new jersey side of the border Uh, but i wanted to bring ken on the show because we're going to talk about exit planning for business owners and more specifically uh, Ken is, is a true expert in not just exit planning overall, but he's going to be talking to us today about an employee stock ownership plan, or mm. ESOP for short. And a lot of technical details that go with it, but you know, Ken's a good friend of mine. Uh, we both serve on the Living Balance Sheet National uh, Teaching Faculty. He's just a wealth of knowledge, and I reached out to him and said, I, I think you would, be, you would be awesome for an episode. And he, he jumped
1: right in and said, let's do it. So um, I'm really excited to have him on here today, Eric. That is fantastic i'm I'm excited too listeners hey if you're just joining us you've got to understand that jim has been bringing on amazing guests uh go back and listen some to some of those podcasts that you've missed uh you're there's a wealth of information there so jim i'm excited i know that you brought ken on i'm excited to hear from him and what you guys are going to say so take it away all right well ken welcome to the show
3: jim thanks for having me uh glad to be here
2: yeah it's going to be a a great episode i think this is going to be one of those episodes that people play back several times because i know when you present on this topic in the past, um, you know, I, I can't write fast enough as you're as you're speaking here. So I guess just to get us started, tell us a little bit about uh, your practice overall and, and just set the stage for a little bit of, you know, some of the challenges that business owners face as they start to think through, you know, how am I going to take this company
3: that I've built that is successful and transition my way out of it? Why don't we start with that? Sure. Well, Jim, as you know, I spend most of my time dealing with uh, owners of closely held businesses uh, ranging in in value from several million dollars to tens of millions to hundreds of millions to in some cases uh, multi-billion dollar companies and an issue that's on every business owner's mind is what comes next right what is the ultimate exit from the business look like and what is going to be the best path for exiting the company both from a how the business is going to be run how it's going to be owned post-transition how the culture of the company is going to be maintained, and how to manage the tax frictions that can be uh, present anytime there's a major transaction going on, whether it's a sale to private equity or sale to management or otherwise. So, uh, in our practice, we're spending a very significant portion of our time uh, understanding those issues, working through those issues with clients, and we've developed some uh, good procedures for. Uh, separating uh, wise decisions from unwise decisions. Uh, it's usually very facts and circumstances driven, but I'm happy to answer any questions that, that you feel may be relevant to the audience listening uh, to us today. I think to start things off, you know, I, I think a lot of, of
2: business owners, you know, they, they've they've reached a certain value in their company, and they start to think through, you know, who can buy this? And I think sometimes it's, It'd be great if, if some key people could, could buy this out, but maybe they don't have the money. And they start to think through, I, I guess the only way to exit this thing is to sell to a third party. Uh, but there's some drawbacks with that. I mean, what are some of the things that you've seen business owners really just kind of hesitate and say, just in my gut, that doesn't really feel right? Like, What, what drives that?
3: Usually it's a combination of culture Right, a change in the culture of the company, it's a change in control, or there's a problem with the terms of the ultimate transaction, Right, where the, the business owner feels like they're getting out only to leave a significant portion of the economics still at risk. Uh, broadly speaking, and I think you know this is something you're obviously aware of in your own uh, day-to-day practice, but broadly speaking, there are three ways that a business owner can uh, convert their equity into cash or you know, non-equity. the The first is a sale to uh, a third party, a traditional external transaction, which will take the form of anything ranging from an IPO to uh, a sale to private equity to a sale to uh, a strategic buyer. There's an internal transfer, which can be uh, a sale to management. And to your point, management very often lacks the resources to. Uh, effectuate that transaction without a lot of subsidy. There's a sale to employees through something called an ESOP, an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, which I know we'll talk about as we get further into our discussion today. Or there's what I always describe as a conversion from active to passive ownership, where if you think about a business owner as having a, an interest in a company that they're working in, they're generally getting a re- two types of return. There's a return on their labor. What do they get for actually being an executive in the company? And then there's a return on their equity or on their capital. And the conversion from active to passive ownership is a scenario where the business owner is not getting a return on labor and capital, but just on capital going forward. And they're paying someone else to run the business, whether it's somebody that they have in the company already or a group of individuals in the company or they're seeking to source executive talent uh, outside of the business. And the, the fourth option even though i said there's only three the fourth is a combination of those items for example there could be a partial sale to management and then a conversion uh from active to passive ownership once the owner of the company knows that his key people are are locked in on reasonable enough economic terms that he's comfortable with the arrangement and the executives are comfortable enough to know that they ought to stick around which path somebody goes down uh, is is a function of many considerations. Uh, for example, uh, if a, a third-party uh, buyer is going to step in, they're going to want to know that the key people are properly incentivized to stick around because they don't want to buy a business where the key people just up and leave. If there's going to be a sale, but a third-party buyer oftentimes comes with their own capital and resources and ability to stroke a check. If there's going to be a sale internally to management, there's a lot of consideration that needs to go into where's the money coming from. And then regardless of whether it's an external or, or it's an internal sale, there's also this question of how much tax friction is there. And I'll give you just a very basic example, whether it's a sale to a third party or a sale to management, um, taxation is always a consideration. Generally speaking, if management, for example, is going to buy stock in a company, that acquisition of stock, unless it's a very sort of narrow, unique situation, is not going to be a tax-deductible purchase. So In a scenario where someone's going to pay a million dollars to buy stock in a company they have to earn two million to pay the million and then the seller has to pay capital gains tax on the million dollars that they received so you can end up with a situation where a very large portion of the cash flow that is intended to fund the buyout is actually going to the irs or pennsylvania or new york or california or wherever the business Operates, and uh, that creates sort of an additional layer of complexity. So, I think you know, first and foremost, the business owner is going to have built a successful business is going to have a culture, and the business owner who is selling usually is going to be concerned with preserving that culture and making sure that the people who helped him or her build the business to the level of success that it's having are. Uh, going to be comfortable with the new ownership structure. There are then there's the economic considerations, right? How do you maximize the after tax value of the transaction? What are the steps that can be taken? And how do you make a decision of do you sell to a third party? Do you do an internal transfer? How do you benchmark these decisions so that the business owner is not uh, leaving uh, too many chips? on the table when it comes to uh, the the transaction.
2: And you mentioned, Ken, that, you know, the the whole culture thing, I know it's really important to a lot of the owners that we work with. And that that seems to be sometimes the fear when it's just an outright sale to a third party, they're going, all right, I'm going to get a big check. That's great for me, but I don't know what the future is going to be like for my employees and and my customers and things like that. And that's, that's where I've seen some of the hesitation is that your experience has been as
3: well. Yeah, so if you if you look at sort of the typical sale to a third party, it, it's going to have a few components and a few drawbacks. Uh, one component is there's going to be a certain amount of cash paid up front. That's normal in a sale to a third party. There may be some seller financing or seller notes that are uh, in place post-transaction. And then there's typically going to be some amount of equity in new co that old co is being sold to that the seller is going to hold on to. And the reason is uh, incentive alignment. The buyer in, whether it's a private equity or other strategic buyer, wants to know that the seller post-transaction continues to have a vested interest in the overall success of the organization. Mm -hmm. So from a seller's perspective, there are a lot of drawbacks. Number one, they're giving up a degree of control because they don't control NUCO, right, the company that they're rolling their equity into. And in exchange for giving up that control, they're not really getting all of the economics on day one, but they are paying tax on whatever economics they're receiving. And the, the result is that you're selling, but you're not really taking all of your chips off the table in the process. In fact, you're leaving chips on the table, and then how the hand is played with respect to those chips once they're in the pot, is not entirely up to the seller because they're not in charge of the company anymore. Maybe they have operational control of their business, but they're now answering to people where throughout the course of their career and the course of their success, they were operating independently, making their own decisions, and now there's sort of a broader governing apparatus. So I can understand, and I've always understood, how that could be daunting uh, and, and somewhat unappealing for a business owner who's always prided themselves on their entrepreneurialism their independence their ability to run a business and make uh, smart crisp quick decisions you pivot into one of these third-party transactions with private equity and there's a lot of unknown it doesn't mean it's a bad thing and, and maybe it's a tremendously good thing i was with a client recently uh, who's selling his business for just under 100 million dollars. To a private equity company and he's taking 40 percent in cash at closing and he's rolling the other 60 percent which is valued at post money 60 million dollars uh into a new company and his theory is he took the business as far he's not really looking to get out he's looking to take some chips off the table but he is looking to grow and he had reached capacity in terms of how much he could grow without stronger financial partners. So taking on a private equity partner made strategic sense and he thinks that the $60 million of equity that he's rolling into the new partnership with private equity is going to amount to far more than he ever would have been able to achieve on his own. But the deal that he made is he's running it, right? And the private equity company is partnering with him as a platform organization to build something Substantial, and that's different than somebody who's on the, you know, the descent in terms of the, they've reached their destination. They're ready to begin thinking about retirement, and they're looking to de-risk. Right? He he he, he wasn't looking to de-risk. He was looking to maybe take some uh, liquidity, but then ultimately you know, try to keep building the business and, and pounding the pavement and not slow down at all. Right. For someone who is looking to, to take real chips off the table, I can understand how that, that change in the dynamic of control, it's a little bit like you're taking off and, and you know uh, what the first part of your trip is going to be, but you don't really know where things are going to go long term, and that can be, you know, scary for, for many people. Especially everything you pour into that
2: company, it's a that's a bit of a leap of faith sometimes, and not uh, not one you want to, you know, put all your like you said all your chips on the table and go. I, I hope this works. What yeah, about- you have
3: to you have to date first. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
2: So let, let's dive into the in the whole world of, of ESOPs because you know this is one of those things where I think a lot of owners, if they've heard of ESOPs at all. It, it, there's some misperceptions around the size of the company or how it works, the complexity, things like that. So tell us where an ESOP starts to fit in, and then let's dive into how they work and and, and why they're so attractive for the right type of company.
3: Sure. Uh, so an ESOP high-level is an employee stock ownership plan. It's a qualified plan, just like a 401k, that is eligible to own stock in a small business that's not publicly traded. In fact, it's the only type of qualified plan that is legally permitted to own stock in an S corporation without blowing the S corporation status. It's also the only type of qualified plan that legally is allowed to use leverage. It's allowed to use borrowed money. So... There are uh, a variety of reasons beyond enriching the employees. In fact, that's usually last on uh, any business owner's list, right? They're, they're usually paying their employees fairly, and they want to, of course, make sure that they're you know taken care of as time goes on. But ultimately, we view an ESOP as a tool for the business owner to sell their business, maintain control of the business until they're fully paid, and achieve a tax-free transaction, or certainly a tax-deferred transaction. So I'll walk you through uh, how the mechanics of an ESOP work and why they are uh, so tax-favorable. Without getting political, I will tell you that Democrats and Republicans love ESOPs. It's one point in the Internal Revenue Code that both parties are 100% in favor of. Democrats love ESOPs because they're great for employees, and they really are. They're a wonderful employee benefit. Republicans love ESOPs because they're great from an income tax standpoint. There's a lot of tax savings associated with an ESOP. So you've got uh, two parties that generally don't agree on much of anything. On this one little itty bitty section of the Internal Revenue Code, they they happen to to get along beautifully. Win-win. It's a very rare right. thing. It's a very win-win. Rare. That's we right. finally found bipartisanship. That's it. an alter Congress. for president. Here it's we go. been that way for decades. I will run on this platform. <laughs> ESOPs all day. Um, I'll have, instead of MAGA hats, I'll have ESOP hats. And um, anyway, the, the way it works is uh, you can sell your company to an ESOP. And a bank or non-bank lender will actually lend money based upon the appraised value of the business to finance the transaction, which is unique, right? So you're you're basically manufacturing a market for your business and lenders will provide liquidity to finance the sale of a business to an ESOP in the same way that they would provide liquidity to a private equity shop to do a leveraged buyout of the business. And usually with sort of similar leverage ratios, the difference is if I take a business, let's say it's a uh, just for simplicity of math, $100 million company, and I sell that business to private equity, assuming it was a stock sale, which usually would not be, it would be an asset sale, but just pretend it was a stock sale for simplicity's sake, I have to pay capital gains tax on the sale of that business. So there's a uh, federal tax. There's a 3-and-change percent uh, net investment income tax. If you're in a state that has state-level capital gains tax, as we do in New York and New Jersey, if that's $100 million, $33, $34, $35 million is quickly going out the uh, door to pay various governmental authorities. That's not ideal. It's still nice to get a check for $100 million. It's always good to be able to keep some of it But I've always viewed one of our primary missions from a planning standpoint to legally help our clients keep as much of their money as possible and not pay any more money in tax than they legally have to pay. An ESOP allows the business owner to sell the company to the plan and make what's called a 1042 exchange election. So a 1042 exchange is similar to 1031 exchange in real estate. It's a like kind exchange. And as long as the proceeds of the sale are invested in the appropriate way into something called qualified replacement property, or QRP, which is very broad and very straightforward on how to do it, the sale of the business is actually a tax-deferred sale. So theoretically, if I was going to sell to private equity for $100 million and pay 30 in tax netting million. If I instead sell the same company to an ESOP, which is a trust for the benefit of employees, it's not the same as selling it to the employees. They don't own the company. The trust for their benefit owns the company on a leveraged basis. Well, now I get that $100 million fully tax deferred. And not only that, because it's essentially a sale to an insider The governance around the company, the culture around the company, who is controlling the company post-transaction while the purchase price is being paid, that is something that the seller can dictate in a way that the seller cannot dictate to private equity. And what's interesting is an ESOP-owned company may very well be more creditworthy than a non-ESOP-owned company in terms of going out and borrowing money to finance the transaction. So I'll give you an example. Uh, If I am an S corporation, if I have an S corporation, which I'm not, I'm a person, but if I was an S corporation, and I was owned by an individual, I would be distributing income or certainly issuing a K-1 that shows profit on which income taxes need to be paid each year. But if my K-1 is being issued to an ESOP trust, which is a qualified plan that operates on a tax-exempt business basis, now that business that was paying income tax is no longer a taxable entity. So theoretically, if I made a dollar or a million dollars or $10 million and the company was 100% ESOP owned, there's no income tax at all, period, on the company's earnings on a go-forward basis. A lot of people's ears just perked up based on that one right there. Yeah. As I said, Democrats and Republicans love it. It's great for employees. It's great for income taxes. So I can sell the business on a tax-deferred basis to the plan. And then once the plan owns the business, it operates on a tax-exempt basis, And that is why banks and other lenders are so interested in lending to ESOP-owned companies. So I'll give you an example. Uh, We have a client in, uh, just say the logistics space, because I realize there's, you know, some businesses are easier to identify than others, but uh, family-owned business for uh, multiple generations. And they had finally decided it was time to to look at long-term exit Opportunities taking chips off the table. They were looking at a sale to a private equity. We had encouraged them to go through an ESOP feasibility study. They go through the ESOP feasibility study, and it's determined that well, private equity might have offered them, let's say, one hundred and fifty-five million dollars for their business. An ESOP, which is represented by an independent fiduciary trustee, so to still negotiate a transaction, but it's you know more of a wink, wink, uh, on the negotiation side. Uh, The ESOP only offers $145 million, but they're going to get that $145 million tax-free, whereas private equity, they're going to have to pay tax. They're only going to get a part of it up front, and it's really going to be a much more miserable process that ultimately results in uh, less money in the business owner's pocket. That's not a good thing. Right. So what we did was we actually brought in a series of lenders to lend money to the ESOP to provide liquidity to pay a good portion, let's say a third of the purchase price right up front in cash tax free to the seller with the balance of the payments to be made on a seller note that the company was in a position to afford to pay down very quickly because it no longer had to worry about paying the IRS since it was 100% ESOP owned at that point and therefore not paying income tax on an ongoing basis. So. ESOP economics can work out very favorably in the right fact pattern, and that's just an example of, uh, of a situation.
2: So what about, you mentioned that, that the ESOP is, you know, once that company is sold to the ESOP, it's no longer a tax-paying entity. Does that mean that the, the owners give up cash flow from that point forward if they're still hanging on to a piece of that business? Or are they completely out, here's your lump sum, Like walk us through like what the cash flow looks like for the for the exiting owner?
3: Yeah, so I'll get. So it's not usually done as a lump sum transaction, because typically the the source of capital, which is bank financing, initially is not going to be willing to lend a hundred percent LTV loan to value against the the company. So what will happen is the payments are made in tranches. So if you think about uh, the orig- the initial sale, let's say it's a hundred percent of the company for. I'm going to keep using $100 million because I could just do the math simply on 100 So So $100 million sale. Initially, a percentage of that $100 million is going to be paid up front. So we're going to go to PNC Bank or Wells Fargo or Local Yokel Bank, and we're going to say that the company wants to borrow money to lend to the ESOP to uh, finance the acquisition of the stock. So we'll sell 100% of the company, And let's say that PNC Bank, that's just a random example, steps in to lend $40 million, 40% of the purchase price. Great. PNC Bank lends $40 million. The seller cashes out $40 million on day one. No tax, right, because it's a 1042 exchange. The seller is now holding a note for $60 million called a seller note. And uh, the seller is still presumably the CEO of the company, so they're receiving a salary for running the company. They are receiving interest payments on the seller note. They've received $40 million in cash. And technically, they're going to own warrants tied to the future value of the company. And that's something that incentivizes them from the ESOP's perspective to continue trying to build the business. As the first note, which is the note to the external third-party banks of PNC Bank in our example, gets paid down, the company and the ESOP will then re-leverage to pay down additional principal on the seller note. So let's say over a three-year period, we go from $40 million down to $20 million owed to PNC Bank, the, the bank that we're using in our example will then go back to PNC Bank and say, hey, we'd love to refinance. And since we only owe you $20 million of leverage, uh, $20 million, let's refinance back up to $40 million or $50 million, whatever the total debt capacity is of the company, so that the seller can take additional cash off the table tax-free. And what ends up happening is you actually end up with with a seller who's cashing out on a very similar timeline to what might have happened with the sale to private equity because a private equity is not just going to pay a hundred million dollars. It's going to be a combination of cash up front and seller notes and rollover equity and other things, you know, earnouts and performance incentives, et cetera. Well, th- this is really no different, except the seller's in control of the whole situation. They're preserving their culture and they're eliminating the tax on the transaction. So And the business, frankly, is much more valuable if owned in a tax-exempt structure than if owned by private equity in a fully taxable structure. So an ESOP can effectively afford to pay much faster. Does that make sense, Jim?
2: Makes perfect sense. So I mean, it's a lot easier to, to split a pie when you just make the pie bigger. Yeah, you cut, cut off the IRS's side of the equation and there's just it just makes the whole the whole transaction much easier to facilitate. You you mentioned the the pay down of the loan over time.
3: Walk us through how that loan, how that note is paid down in the first place. So so let's in our example, we were using a hundred million dollar company. So let's just say it's a ten million dollar EBITDA business and it traded at a ten times multiple for simplicity's sake. So in that scenario the company has $10 million of cash flow, right? There's gonna be an amortization schedule on note A, which is the note that's owed to the third party bank. In our example, PNC Bank or Wells Fargo or JP Morgan or whoever, it doesn't really matter. And as that note, as money is being earned by the company, is not being reinvested in the business, to grow, it is going to be allocated to pay down note A, which is the the note that's owed to the th- third party. Note B, which is the seller note, is going to receive a combination of interest uh, payments and what's called payment in kind, accrued interest uh, or pick interest, as is P I K is what it's called. And that you know the cash interest is we paid currently. That's going to help the seller continue to finance their lifestyle, so on and so forth. But it's only when, when the first note, note A, which is the, the note to the bank, is paid down or or you know mostly paid down that principal will begin to amortize on note B. And we'll typically, through a refinance structure, always keep note A at a certain level by just continually refinancing. In that bucket to try to get the seller more cash sooner, consistent with the company's ability to afford leverage, but that's basically how it works. So, can, is it safe to say that that some of that cash flow that's being used to pay down the note is
2: probably cash flow that otherwise would have been paid in taxes in the old, you
3: know, in the old company before they they transitioned to an ESOP? Is that where some of the cash flow comes from? Yes, and and it, that that's a great observation. Uh, it is amazing. To me, why, I'm always perplexed as to why more companies are not going the ESOP route for a sale, because the IRS is effectively financing a very large portion of the transaction. Everyone's <laughs> always right. looking for a big deduction. It's like, here's one right in front of you. Yeah, and it's statutory. Internal Revenue Code section 1042, this is not an interpretation right. of the code. This is It's textual. It's literal. There's no disagreement among professionals as to how a 1042 exchange needs to be structured. It's uh, crystal clear under the law. So a couple other things are coming to
2: mind. Um, I want to make sure we have time to, to address both of these. One is I want to talk about what does the seller do with the proceeds. But before we do that, what about the employees? Cause now, you know, they, they hear, Hey, our, our company is an ESOP. They're like, what does that mean? And you know, you mentioned it is a qualified plan. So, you know, to an employee it may kind of look and sound and feel like a 401k. How does it feel from the employee standpoint? What's in it for them? How do they contribute? Can they contribute? Can you spend a minute on that, please?
3: Yeah, so so typically what we'll do is um, there'll be a 401k plan, there will be a profit sharing plan, um, and the company will make contributions to the plan each year up to 25% of payroll. Uh, initially, when, when the shares are transferred to the ESOP, that's not the same as transferring the shares to the employees. Because the bank needs to be paid and the seller needs to be paid. And there's something called a suspense account that's set up that's typically anywhere from 20 to 40 years where shares are allocated to employee trust accounts over a period of time as the company is actually being paid for. So the way to think about it is on day one, you set up an ESOP, you're not really allocating anything to the employees right out of the gate because the company has very little value inside of the plan right let's say you sold it for 100 million dollars and there's 100 million dollars of debt against it what's it worth nothing right zero but as that debt gets paid down shares are allocated or can be allocated to employee accounts which you could think of almost as synthetic equity in the company it's really owned by the esop trust and the employees in addition to receiving their normal 401k contributions and matches and profit sharing, none of that needs to change. So this is an added benefit, is the more successful that they can make the company, the better they'll ultimately do. Because when they reach a certain age or they ultimately leave the company, they have what's called a diversification option, which is to the extent that they're vested in um, any portion of the company, which they won't be early on, but as ESOP becomes more mature, it certainly happens, then uh, they have the right to sell their synthetic shares back to the plan, i.e. back to the company, and cash out. So once a year, there's an appraisal of the business that's done and the employees see what their equity is and they have an opportunity to benefit as the company grows. So some of the, the best Happiest employees, uh, who are most productive, uh, exist within these ESOPs, where their contribution to the company, in some way, shape, or form, is going to correlate to what their retirement might look like. Mm-hmm. It may be in the distant future, but it's you know it's a good thing to have.
2: A lot more pride in their work. They they see hey if I give this company all I have it's gonna it's gonna help everybody not just myself but yeah, it's gonna help grow the, the value value this thing which I participate in so. Big time incentive, I think, for the employees.
3: It it absolutely is. And you know, one of the things that we always tell our clients who are the owners of these companies is we don't want to give anything away to the employees, right? Even though we might love them. They're great people. Usually they're already paid appropriately. However, if the eSop is facilitating a fair market value purchase of the business from the seller to the plan, and it so happens that if the employees continue to drive the company's growth and earnings, the plan is actually able to perform on its repayment to the seller notes, someone's gonna own the equity on the other side of that transaction. It's either gonna be a stranger in private equity who's, you know, there for 5 years, maybe 7 years before they then cash out or it's going to be the people on whose backs the business was built. Who would you rather it goes to? Right. Mr. Exactly. So. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like we're not giving them anything. It's that we're getting paid and we're getting tremendous tax benefits. And you know what? If the company's able to deliver on the goods, God bless them. That's right. Reward the people who put the work in. That's Why good. not? That's right. It's not costing anything.
2: That's right. So, so back to the seller. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the the exchange of, of basically like kind property. You know, I know a lot of owners listening to this going, okay, well, does that mean another business just like mine, or is this more public securities? So, can you talk about
3: what what do they do with those proceeds to keep that that tax deferral going? Uh, ab- absolutely. So, so Jim, something that that you're able through your organization to help with is the structure of what's called a qualified replacement property portfolio. And what that basically means... So so prior to the sale to an ESOP, there's an intermediate step that I did not mention for fear of making anybody's head explode. But prior to the sale to the ESOP, there's actually a conversion of the company to a C corporation. And then once it's in the ESOP after a certain waiting period or restructuring period, there's a conversion from being a C corporation back to an S corporation. And you need to be a C corporation at the time of the sale to qualify for 1042 exchange tax treatment, although Congress is considering making it something that you could do directly as an S corporation beginning in 2028. We'll see how that goes. But uh, for now, if you're a C corporation and you sell to the plan, you can take the proceeds and invest in what's called qualified replacement property. And think of that as debt or equity, including preferred equity, in publicly traded, operating businesses that are not holding companies. So an example of a company that doesn't fit the definition of qualified replacement property and a company that does fit the definition of qualified replacement property, Berkshire Hathaway, amazing business, track record speaks for itself. It doesn't qualify as qualified replacement property. And the reason it doesn't qualify is it's not an operating business. It's a conglomerate. It has many operating subsidiaries, but its income is ultimately passive, not active income. So it would not qualify. But a subsidiary entity, for example, Coca-Cola or American Express, companies in which Berkshire Hathaway has ownership shares in those companies or debt issued by those companies would certainly qualify in the qualified replacement property bucket so you can either construct a portfolio of equities for example you know stock in jp morgan coca-cola i'm not these are not stock picks by the way I'm just giving you examples of company that fit the definition whether you should buy them whether they're good investments i'm not commenting at all on that uh Past performance don't guarantee future results. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> the... galore, disclaimer, disclaimer, yeah. disclaimer, disclaimer. You didn't get it from me. Um, the so so those are all companies that whether they're issuing equity or debt, either one would would qualify. But you know, one of the questions that often comes up in the qualified replacement property space is, well, maybe I want company X Y Z in my portfolio today, but I may not want it there in the future, or I may want to rebalance. How do I do that without triggering tax? And the answer is you can't. So there are other strategies involving uh, something called floating rate notes, FRNs, uh, and um, what I'll describe as safe margin on floating rate notes that allow you to effectively allocate a very small percentage of the purchase price that you're receiving, typically around 10% of your proceeds, to go out and buy 100% of your qualified replacement property. And then, you know, you walk away with the other 90%, uh, and you can go buy real estate, stocks, bonds, uh, gamble it in Vegas. You can do whatever you want with the other 90, 90%.
2: So, so there's ways to not just reinvest but preserve the tax efficiency, but you also have some diversification opportunities because the world's ever changing and who knows what things look like 10, 15, 20 years from now.
3: Exactly, and I think that you know, anytime you're gonna do something, you wanna maximize your, your flexibility. So it's a little bit like for people who are in the real estate space, a 1031 exchange followed by a refinance. You just wanna make sure that what you're buying is financeable so that you can have your money to go do other things. But I, w- I would think, Jim, to, to get into the deeper mechanics of that is probably beyond uh, the, the the scope of what we have time to cover today. It's a very nuanced, specialized, interesting topic that we could spend you know two hours just to cover the surface of how to do it properly. We'll, maybe we'll do a, an episode part two.
2: Yeah, definitely. Oh. So I guess before we wrap up, Ken, is there anything else that the audience should know about ESOPs or things that they should be looking for to even even think, hey, it, could
3: this even fit my company? I think it's hard for the business owner to know, right? Is this the right fit or not the right fit? I think if they're beginning to contemplate what might an exit look like and where they've been approached by private equity or other potential buyers for their business that looking at an ESOP is something that can make a lot of sense because if if you have an internal market for your shares in your company that almost creates a baseline against which all other transactions should be measured for example if you whether it's a 100 million dollar business or a 10 million dollar business if you know that you can sell on a tax deferred basis with financing To an ESOP. Well, that creates a hurdle that another buyer has to be able to overcome on an after tax basis. So it's good to know what that number is. And I think part of being thorough in the exit planning and business owner retirement planning world is looking at each of these angles. A business owner spends their career their entire life, taking risk to build a business, to achieve the success that they've had. I think it's, and Jim, we've talked about this before, it's incumbent upon us as advisors to take a small, itty-bitty, inconsequential fraction of that time and look at all the options and see what we come up with.
2: That's right. Well, that's perfect, Ken. This is uh, this was an awesome episode. I, I know there's several people I have in mind they are going to listen to this probably three or four times because there was, there was so much good information here. Um, uh, if someone wants to reach out to you directly, what's the best way to, uh, to contact you? Um, preferably through you, Jim, preferably <laughs> through you. Perfect. <laughs> well, with that, uh, if, if you have questions about ESOPs or just exit planning in general, um, easy way to reach out to me is just to go to our website, com, or you can email us directly at info at com And, um, just let us know you listen to the show and you have some questions and we'll, we'll schedule some time to talk. So Ken, thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, this was, this
3: was really awesome. And, uh, you know, looking forward to getting this out in the, in the hands of our audience. Jim, thanks for having me. Any time that uh, I can hang out with you is always good time. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here.
1: All right. You as well, Eric, let me, uh, let me turn it back over to you. All right, Ken and Jim, this has been fantastic. And I, Jim, I couldn't agree more. I'm so glad that podcasts have a pause button because people can pause write some notes uh take some information down hopefully they are taking down your your information i mean that's on every podcast so they can always go and and check out the other podcasts to get it there too um hopefully they reach out and get for more information because ken the things you were talking about today yes deep and very wide a lot of information there but at the same time i know you just barely scratch the surface of of all that's good in Aesop, So thank you both for the show again. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast with Jim McGovern. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way when Jim comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at McGovern Wealth Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA insurance license number. 0F67329. AR Insurance License Number 7119103. California Insurance License Number 0F67329. Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103.
2: Compliance Number 2023-152764 expires March 2025.